Hi all and welcome to the Herbert Smith Freehills Public Law Team's latest podcast. I am Hannah Lau, an associate in the Public Law Team, and today we're going to be talking about the impact of recent developments, most notably Brexit, on potential regulatory disputes in the consumer sector. We will be joined today by Andrew Lidbetter, who is a partner in the Public Law Team, and Jasvir Randawa, who is of counsel in the same team. Andrew, just as an introduction for our listeners, please could you tell us a bit about what we're going to be talking about today? Thanks, Hannah. Yes, we recognise that corporates in the consumer sector will generally wish to keep a good relationship with the government, with their regulators and other public authorities. But of course, it's possible that sometimes a company's interests come into conflict with those bodies. For example, because the government has announced a decision following a consultation to introduce a new set of regulations, uh, which regulations would be adverse to the interests of a company. As part of our work in the public law team, we've seen a significant number of issues in the consumer sector which focus on regulatory matters that may be relevant for listeners to this podcast. It was because of the level of activity in the consumer sector that we decided to put together a guide in June of last year. The purpose of that guide is to help those involved in the consumer sector to navigate and understand the public and administrative law issues that could come up for their businesses. Thanks, Andrew. And for those that haven't read the guide, Jazz, could you give us a brief overview as to how public and administrative law comes into the picture here? Yes. Public law principles essentially set the limits of what regulators and other public authorities can do when exercising their duties or powers. The guide points out the principles with a view to helping police the activities of public bodies. Also, there are then various ways that authorities might fail to stick to those parameters. And if that happens, then it can give rise to a judicial review claim or other public law proceedings. There are broadly three categories of grounds of challenge that can be used to police activities or subsequently in judicial review. These are that the public body has acted illegally or unlawfully, secondly, irrationally or unreasonably, or the final category in a way that is procedurally unfair. I would say that generally the cases around illegality and procedural fairness are the ones where the courts are more willing to get involved. Procedural fairness can take many forms, as you can see in the section of the guide that starts on page 23. For example, it could require an entity to be given the opportunity to make representations before a final public law decision is made in a specific regulatory investigation into that entity. Or it may require that where a consultation is held, it should be done in an adequate and fair manner. So for example, on page 26 of the guide, we refer to a couple of example cases, such as the British Blind and Shutter Association case and the Electronic Collar Manufacturers Association case. Thanks, Jazz. And Andrew, what makes judicial review different from normal civil claims? There are a number of differences in the procedure, such as shorter time limits to bring a claim and different rules around disclosure. I think what's key for regulatory disputes is that generally judicial review can only be used to challenge the legality of a public body's decision-making process rather than providing an opportunity for a court to attack the merits or to actually remake the decision. So in a successful judicial review, 
there are a number of remedies available, but a common one is for the court to quash the decision that it found was unlawful, irrational, or procedurally unfair. But instead of taking the decision for the public authority, a court will likely remit the decision back to that body if it considers that the decision was unlawful, and the public body would then take the decision again. I see. And in the time that has passed since we produced the guide last June, there have been particular developments which we want to pick up on today as particularly relevant and which our listeners should be aware of. Yes, the first theme is really around Brexit, uh, which will of course already be on everyone's minds. The UK's exit from the EU gives rise to the question of what's happened to all of the potential ways in which regulatory law disputes in the consumer sector will now change going forward, if at all. This is a key question for listeners. We'll now need to bear in mind how to navigate the post-Brexit world when it comes to the way in which public authority or regulatory decisions can be challenged. This is especially the case when much of the previous case law, as discussed in our guide, were claims that had a basis in EU law. Right, so for example, earlier Andrew said, that a ground of challenge for judicial review is on the basis of legality. And that is the principle that a public authority has to act in accordance with the actual legal provisions that gives them the basis for their duties or powers. And when it doesn't do so, a judicial review challenge can then be brought on that basis? Yes. As some of our listeners may be aware, uh, many cases in the guide involved challenges where the underlying legal provisions were in fact EU law. So for example, at page seven of the guide, we talk about the uh, Newbie Foods case against the Food Standards Agency from 2019. Uh, this case essentially involved the question of whether the FSA had been correct in its interpretation of what was mechanically separated meat for the purposes of an EU regulation. The implications for Newbie Foods were that this decision would have an impact on what it was required to do in terms of classifying and labelling its products. Newbie Foods said that the FSA had wrongfully interpreted the definition of mechanically separated meat and therefore had acted outside the scope of the EU regulation when making its decision. Uh, at first instance, the judge uh, had referred the case to the European Court of Justice and the European Court of Justice had then provided a judgment setting out certain criteria for what was mechanically separated meat for the purposes of the relevant EU regulation. The case ended up in the Court of Appeal, which said uh, that it was bound to follow the Court of Justice's narrow interpretation of the definition, and so the Court of Appeal held that the FSA had acted in accordance with the EU regulation and consequently Newbie Foods products were to, were to be classified as mechanically separated meat. That was how the um, case worked. Right, and so the Court of Appeal essentially found that the FSA had acted lawfully and within the scope of the EU regulation, and that was given the Court of Justice's interpretation of that regulation. Now that was back in 2019 before Brexit, now that we've transitioned out of the EU, what would this case look like if brought now, Jazz? And in particular, for our listeners who may be faced with an adverse decision by a regulator, as in this case, 
would a challenge still be open based on the underlying EU regulation? First question here is would the legality challenge still be open on the basis that the regulator didn't act in accordance with an underlying EU provision? In theory, yes, but with a twist. The EU Withdrawal Act 2018 essentially means that much of what was previously EU law has been converted into domestic UK law under the name of retained EU law. The EU law which has been retained and become domestic includes law that applies directly in the UK. This means that unless specifically excluded, EU regulations will now be retained EU law. So therefore, in a case like Newbie Foods, it's likely that the underlying EU regulation would have been retained as domestic law, and it would be open to a claimant to bring a challenge on the basis that the regulator hadn't acted in accordance with that retained EU law. So on that basis, we could probably still expect the substance of many legality challenges to be similar to before. So aside from the fact that the challenge would still be brought on the basis of the EU regulation, but being EU, EU retained law, would there be any other differences to this case, do you think, if it were brought today? Well, while the substance of the claim would be similar, I think that there could be key differences in the outcome of the claim. The first difference is that in this case, as Andrew mentioned, the trial judge referred the question of the interpretation of the EU regulations to the Court of Justice as per the process before exit day. However, now, of course, that avenue isn't open to the UK courts, who won't be referring cases going forward to the Court of Justice. So if this case were brought today, the UK court would have to decide for itself what its interpretation of the relevant provision was. And as you can see, that could lead to a divergence in interpretation between the UK courts on the one hand and the Court of Justice on the other. In addition, the UK courts won't generally be bound by post-exit day decisions of the Court of Justice, and they'll be able to apply their own interpretation to retain EU law. So if this case happened today, and then the Court of Justice issued a decision as to what should be classified as mechanically separated meat, the UK courts wouldn't have to follow that interpretation and they could diverge. Although I think they would be likely to take into account the interpretation of the Court of Justice. And Andrew, what about if this case was brought today, but the Court of Justice decision had already existed before exit day? The way it works is that the UK lower courts will be expected to follow pre-exit day decisions, whereas appellate courts are expected to consider departing from pre-transition EU case law using the same approach as if they were departing from their own case law. So in the Newbie Foods case, the Court of Appeal felt that there was not much scope for taking an expansive interpretation of what the Court of Justice had said, and the appeal was dismissed. Now we're post-exit day, it would be more open to the Court of Appeal to depart from the Court of Justice conclusion, even if that Court of Justice case had taken place before exit day. The position that we're now in post-exit means that there is scope for public law challenges to look a bit different and for the UK courts to diverge where they were previously more bound by Court of Justice decisions. Thanks, Andrew. 
What do you think will be another big change to public law challenges in this post-Brexit world? It strikes me that another key type of challenge which will change are those based on proportionality. Uh, proportionality is a concept uh, derived from EU law and also European human rights law aimed at looking at whether the measures adopted by a public authority are a proportionate means to achieve a legitimate end. Proportionality isn't a freestanding ground of challenge in a domestic judicial review. It's available in a judicial review based on EU law and EU human rights law. So essentially, uh, what would happen prior to Brexit is that we would take an EU treaty right, such as free movement of persons, and challenge a public authority's decision on the basis that the decision isn't a proportionate uh, measure and is an infringement of the right. Yes, and we see a lot of these types of challenges in the HSF guide, such as the EU Lotto case, which is on page 13, and also the Gibraltar betting case, which is on page 14 of the guide. And the cases include challenges based on the proportionality of restrictions, as you say, Andrew, to rights such as free movement of goods, the freedom to provide services, and free, free movement of persons. So, Jazz, what has changed here? I suppose the first question is what's happened to the underlying rights that proportionality in those cases would have been based on. Principles like free movement of goods and services and the right of establishment are based on what was originally the dominant aim of the EU treaties to liberalise trade between member states. Of course, the UK is not, no longer a member state and not a continuing party to any EU treaty except the withdrawal agreement. The articles of the EU treaties from which these freedoms derive don't apply in the UK, and I doubt that these principles exist outside of that context. Therefore, many of the rights that proportionality would have bitten on previously have been expressly repealed. Even if there is a remaining underlying right, it seems that withdrawal agreement limits the scope of being able to bring proportionality challenges in an EU law context. While proportionality is a concept in retained EU law, it appears that it hasn't been retained as a ground for judicial review itself, according to Schedule 1, Paragraph 3 of the withdrawal agreement. Although there is a carve-out in Schedule 8, Paragraph 39, which allows claims to be brought within three years of exit day if they challenge anything that occurred before exit day. So it seems a little uncertain as to how proportionality will operate going forward in the way that it might have done under previous EU law-based challenges. Although I do note that a challenge based on a disproportionate infringement of EU law would be different from a challenge based on a disproportionate infringement of a right under the EU Convention on Human Rights. Yes, as you say, proportionality is similar but separate concept in the EU law on the one hand and uh, the European Convention on Human Rights law on the other. So what we were discussing about the scope for proportionality challenges um, now uh, applies to um, uh, the European Court of Human Rights or European Convention on Human Rights uh, as uh, dealt with in the UK courts 
and uh, EU law uh, can no longer be uh, raised in the same way. Please could you briefly explain that difference between an EU law based claim and a claim under the European Convention on Human Rights, Andrew? Yes, in the UK we have the Human Rights Act which effectively incorporates most European Convention on Human Rights rights into UK law. Uh, that includes, for example, property rights and the right to freedom of expression. Brexit, therefore, hasn't really affected the position of those cases, given that the Human Rights Act would usually be the basis for bringing any challenges involving arguments that there's been a disproportionate infringement of a human right. I therefore expect most of those cases not to be much affected by Brexit. For example, in our guide, we cover various cases which bring challenges on the basis of an alleged disproportionate interference with the right to peaceful enjoyment of possessions under Article 1 of the first protocol to the European Convention. Uh, that includes um, the J.P. Witter case on page 8 and the Friends of Antique Cultural Treasures case on page 13. And since um, those rights are effectively incorporated into domestic law through the Human Rights Act, uh, I wouldn't expect that proportionality challenges against a regulatory decision that may have um, arguably infringed those rights uh, would be uh, particularly different to the way those cases uh, were being argued uh, before Brexit. Thanks, Andrew. So we've talked about how challenges which were previously available might be different or potentially no longer available. I suppose another question for Jazz is, has Brexit opened up any new types of challenges in this sphere, which our listeners might want to bear in mind going forward? Well, I think much of this remains to be seen. There's been quite a lot of noise around the fact that the UK-EU trade deal may also open up opportunities for those in the consumer sector to bring challenges to certain decisions relating to subsidies or grants. As part of this, under the UK-EU Trade and Cooperation Agreement, the UK will set up its own new subsidy control regime. It's not clear what this regime will look like specifically, but in particular, there is a new transparency regime under Article 3 of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. And this specifically caters for a regime under which an interested party, and that's defined quite broadly, can request information from the government with a view to deciding whether or not to bring a claim. So that's new and it could open up opportunities for affected persons to assess the merits of bringing such a claim potentially through the judicial review avenue. Of course, judicial review challenges could previously be brought alleging a breach of state aid law, but depending on what regime is put in place in the UK, there could be more challenges. Thanks, Jazz. So we spent quite a bit of time talking about the developments which have arisen from various changes following the UK's exit from the EU. Aside from those themes, should there be anything else that our listeners should be keeping an eye out for, Andrew? Yes, I think it's fair to say that the most significant changes that have been put in place have arisen from Brexit and we'll continue to see how those play out. But in addition to those changes, domestically there is a potential for significant change in the public law area following a review of judicial review and administrative law which was commissioned by the UK government. The review involved an appointed independent panel looking at both the substantive 
and procedural aspects of judicial review and administrative law. The review covered a very broad scope of potential reform to the area, including the issue of standing to bring a claim, uh, whether reform to remedies should be made, and also the timing of when a claim uh, should be brought. The panel very recently issued its report and the government has now announced a consultation. Uh, we've covered the review itself in more detail in another podcast and blog post and we'll be doing a podcast in relation to the recently announced government consultation. But the summary is really that the scope for reform uh, could lead to changes uh, that affect us all, whether it's in the consumer sector or, or otherwise. Thanks very much, Andrew. I think that's all we have time for today, but thank you both of you so much for your time exploring the latest developments and how they might affect our listeners in the consumer sector, in particular those who may be concerned with regulatory disputes. And for their reference, if they want to find the guide that both of you have been talking about today, where could they do that, Jazz? It can be found on our HSF public law blog. Um, it's called Regulatory Disputes in the Consumer Sector, and it was published on the 30th of June, 2020. Thanks, Jazz. Well, that concludes our podcast, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>